Well, I want to thank you for being here with us this morning. What a beautiful morning God's given to us. What a, what a great day. And we just thank you for coming and spending this Lord's Day with us. If you're visiting with us today, we're so glad you're here. Uh, thank you for coming to spend this uh, Sunday morning with us. Um, I know that a minute ago, Seth gave a little bit of update on Chris McLaughlin. Chris is a uh, director of all of our media arts, creative arts here at the church. And um, many of you know he was in a really a, a tragic uh, car accident a little bit over a week ago. And um, anyway, he's heading to Craig Center in Denver tomorrow. He and his wife are going to fly them there. It's a, a rehabilitation center for people with spinal cord injuries. So we just need to keep praying for Chris and Sarah and for their family. Uh, we thank you so much for your outpouring of help and love and, and generosity for them. And they're going to need, need a lot of that, I think, in the days to come. So I just want to lead us this morning in a prayer. Let's pray for Chris and Sarah this morning as they head to Denver tomorrow. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for uh, the, what we were able to celebrate last week, last Sunday here, that you are the resurrection and the life, that all power and might belongs to you. And Father, we come to you as the resurrection and the life, and we ask you to intercede and intervene on behalf of our dear friend Chris and his wife Sarah and their children. And Father, you tell us in your word that you heal all, disease, all our diseases. We ask, oh God, that you'd come and bring supernatural healing to Chris. He'd get the feeling back soon in his legs and he'd be able to, to use his hands again. Oh God, we come and we plead with you to, to come and to, to have your wonderful healing hand upon his life and his body. Father, we thank you that you're the God of all comfort. We pray that Chris and Sarah would know that comfort that only you can bring, that they would have that peace that passes all understanding. Father, go out before them, we pray now. We just pray for all of us. We'll continue to remember them. and We'll continue to support and to help them, Father, and do what we can to be an encouragement to them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Oklahoma City Marathon is this morning, and uh, there aren't a lot of uh, marathon jokes out there, but one of my favorite ones is this. A guy said this. He says, last year I entered a marathon. The race started, and immediately I was the last of the runners. It was embarrassing. The guy was in front of me, second to last, was making fun of me and mocking me. He said, hey, buddy, how does it feel to be last? I replied, you really want to know? And then I dropped out of the race. <laughs> now, I can relate to that, but I decided to drop out of the race before it started to save myself a lot of pain and misery. And it looks like uh, most of you made that same wise choice since you're here this morning. So uh, we all chose wisely, I think. Well, if you take your Bible and turn with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, uh, that's our, our text for this morning. We're in a series in uh, the book of 1 Peter, and uh, we've titled this series, Still Standing. And we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 this morning. I like the story about a man who was on his deathbed, and he'd been slipping in and out of a coma for several days. And his wife, Ethel, was there by his bedside every moment of every day. And he woke up for a moment before he died, and he looked in her eyes and said, Ethel, you've been with me through the bad times. When I got fired, you were there. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were there. We lost the house, you were there. When my health started failing, you were there. You've always been by my side. And then just before he expired, he looked in her eyes and said, Ethel, you know what? And she said, what is it, dear? And he said, I think you bring me bad luck. <laughs> Well, marriage isn't always easy, is it? But, uh, but we need to stand by each other's side. And now the next two weeks, we're going to look at what the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says about marriage. 
Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 addresses wives. Verse 7 addresses husbands. Now, you'll notice there's six verses addressed to the wives and only one verse for the husbands. I always tell my wife that's because wives need more training, and she just laughs at me when I say that. But <laughs> the reason for that is, though, that the, the wives here that Peter's writing to were in a particularly difficult situation, many of them. Uh, these were, some of them were Christian wives. They'd come to faith in Christ, and their husbands were still unbelievers. And so that put them in a very difficult situation in that culture because the wife was expected to follow her husband's religion. So the wife was in a more complicated position, at least some of them were in the church. And so he's writing to them, helping them, and giving them more instruction about this unique situation that some of them found themselves in. But we can draw principles really for all wives from this text here this morning. And then next week in verse 7, we'll address the husbands. Let me read verses 1 to 6, these words of the apostle Peter, the married apostle. It says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. For just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired word. Uh, for centuries, sailors have avoided a section of the ocean just above the equator. I mean, in this uh, area of the ocean, winds can die for days or weeks or even months. And getting trapped in that area was one of the greatest fears of sailors. It could mean the death of the entire crew. Uh, the ship's food and water supply could be depleted as they drifted uh, along uh, for days or even weeks, waiting on a breeze to put them back on course. And now some of you may know this, but this condition of the ocean is called the doldrums. You've probably heard of someone being in the doldrums before, but it refers to the, the winds being stagnant and the ships going nowhere. And marriages can get stuck in their own version of the doldrums. Uh, the currents of love and mutual affection uh, can cease and die out. And without these currents blowing through a marriage, a marriage can quickly become stagnant and ineffective and unsatisfying. What I hope to do the, the next two Sunday mornings for all of us, whatever the state of your marriage may be, is to stir up the passionate winds in our marriages, uh, to harness the, the biblical breezes, if you will, to come and fill the sails of our marriages, to make sure that we don't end up in the doldrums. Or maybe if you're in the doldrums today, uh, to help you catch that breeze from the Word of God and for God to move you out of that situation. I read a quote this week that ministered to me. That the, the man said this, the most important thing in life is to love someone. The second most important thing in life is to have someone love you. The third most important thing is for the first two to happen at the same time. And I like that. That's what we want here for our marriages at Faith Bible Church. We want those two things uh, to happen at the same time. We want strong, godly marriages and homes. And so we begin this morning with wives and a message I've titled, A Word to the Wives. And I want to look at three things in this passage, the obligation, the opportunity, and then what I call the ornament. Now, Peter begins with the obligation. 
Notice he starts out in the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands, um, to your own husbands. If any of them are disobedient, they may be one without a word. Now, this passage really, in many ways, reaches all the way back to verse 12 of chapter 2. I don't know if you remember when we were in that verse, but we said that kind of sets the stage for what would come after it. And he says there to the, to the uh, readers, List, uh, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then he's going to talk about some different arenas or spheres of life where we keep our behavior excellent or attractive among lost people. And notice in verse 13, submit yourselves to every human institution. So he talks about our submissive attitude toward government. Then down in verse 18, he talks about servants, be submissive to your masters. So he moves to the workplace. And now down in chapter 3, verse 1, he moves now uh, to the home. What submission looks like in uh, the family. Now, when he starts out in verse 1 and says, in the same way, you wives, you say, well, in the same way is what? Well, the preceding context in verses 21 to 25, Peter has given the example of Jesus as the suffering servant, the one who sacrificially gave himself uh, for us on the cross. So what he's saying to wives is he's saying, in the same way that Jesus was a servant, you are to serve your family and your husband for Christ's sake. And in doing that, he lays down a very simple principle, a very single principle. The main obligation here to wives in this passage is to submit or to be submissive. You have it in verse 1, be submissive to your own husbands. Down in verse 5, being submissive to their own husbands. So a double call to submit. So Peter doubles down here on this idea of submission. Now, in our culture today, this word submission, when used of wives, is the S word. I mean, skeptics groan when they hear this, right? I mean, this is profoundly countercultural today. I mean, it offends our contemporary culture. It sounds chauvinistic and, and degrading to women. When I was growing up, you know, somebody would say something, and people said, you know, them are fighting words. And uh, today, sadly, even in churches, talking about this, uh, can be fighting words. I mean, some people won't put up with it or tolerate it. In fact, I thought about it this week as I was studying this passage. In many churches, if I were to get up and say the things I'm saying here in this church this morning, it wouldn't go well at all. People don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. There's a, a firestorm of controversy around this word. But when you think about it, our culture has an aversion to anybody submitting to anybody. But yet when you come to the New Testament, all the key passages of marriage, it's over and over again. Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, Titus 2, 5, here in our text this morning. The Bible is clear. The main obligation or command or responsibility for wives in marriage is to submit to or to respect their husband. Now, I want to begin by saying four things that submission doesn't mean. Now, there's a lot more we could say, but let me just mention four things. Most of you know this, but there's no idea in submission of inferiority or inequality. It's not saying that the, the, the wives are mentally inferior to their husbands, emotionally, intellectually. Men and women are equal. In fact, you go down in this same passage to chapter 3, verse 7. He says that your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. 
Both husbands and wives, Adam and Eve, bore the image of God. God gave a dominion over the earth to both Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, in the functional hierarchy of the Trinity, God the Son submits to God the Father. And Jesus is in no way inferior, unequal to the Father. He's, he's very God of very God. He, he's co-equal to the Father. So this idea of submission just carries the idea of order and authority. It's a, it's a functional hierarchy. Secondly, submission here doesn't mean the submission of all women to all men. Notice it says, wives be submissive to your own husbands. So it's not all women are submissive to all men. It's a, it's a function or order within the home. Again, it's a, a hierarchy within the home. A third thing we can say about this submission is it's not absolute. If your husband asks you to do something that's immoral or illegal or unbiblical, you're not under responsibility to carry that out. Uh, the husband doesn't supersede his wife, or the, the husband doesn't supersede Christ as her supreme authority in her life. So if the husband were to ask a wife you know, to lie for him or to go out and party with him and, and get drunk, or to, to look at pornography with him, or on and on we could go. That's where a wife draws the line. This, this submission's not absolute. The, the husband doesn't supersede Christ as the absolute authority in, in, the, in the wife. And the fourth thing I'll mention here, and this is important, submission is not a, a weapon for the husband to use against his wife. Submission must never be weaponized. A domineering, demanding husband is an ungodly husband, and it's not the husband's job to demand for the wife to submit to him. It's not the husband's wife job to be telling his wife that she needs to submit. The Bible never ever says, husbands, get your wives to submit to you. It says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. In other words, that's her responsibility. As a husband, you have a job to do, and we're going to look at that next week. Now, if you do what you're supposed to do as a husband, it will make it a lot easier for her to follow you. But your job as a husband is to love and to lead, and if you try to make your wife submit to you, it will never work. In fact, it will produce the opposite of submission. It'll backfire terribly. What it will do is create resentment and bitterness in your wife. So if you go home and tell your wife, did you hear what Pastor Mark said today? You need to submit to me. That's really dumb. <laughs> and, uh, and it's beyond that, it's unbiblical. I mean, it, but it's unbiblical, but it's just dumb. It'll never work. This is a voluntary yielding on the part of the wife. It's what God works in her life. So it's not your job to get her to submit. It's between her and God. Now, what does it mean to submit? Well, the word here, many of you have heard this before. It's the Greek word hupotasso. It's a military term. It means to, to order under or arrange under, or it's a disposition to yield. Now, when it comes to husbands and wives, this is a, a big issue with, with so many women in our culture about this idea of submission, but submission is found in a lot of contexts in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus was submissive to his parents in Luke 2. The demons were subject to the disciples in Luke 10. Citizens are to be submissive to the government. We saw that in 1 Peter 2.13. The universe is submissive to Christ. 
Christ, uh, the, the uh, church is submissive to Christ, Ephesians 5. We saw in 1 Peter 2.18, servants are submissive to their masters. In, in 1 Corinthians 15.28, Christ is submissive to God the Father. And then we see here in these texts that wives are to be submissive to their husbands. So submission is something that permeates life. But in this context, it's talking about in the relationship of marriage. So biblical submission in marriage is the voluntary inclination of a wife to follow the husband's authority and to yield to his leadership. It means that the wife is willing to defer to the leadership of her husband in the home. It's a, 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 it's a, a yielding deference. The Bible affirms there's a leadership role for the husband in marriage and in the home. And being submissive for a wife means she allows her husband to fulfill his God-given role of leadership in the family. I like what Ray Stedman said years ago. He says, the degree to which a man fulfills his leadership is up to his wife. It is only as the wife is willing to permit and even encourage her husband to lead that he's able to fulfill his manhood. And then he says this, the wife must never try to displace or assume the man's leadership for herself. For among the things a, a woman loves in a man are not only those particular qualities which distinguish him from other men, but simply the fact that he is a man. She loves his manhoodness, his manliness, Part of the essential element of manhood is leadership. Therefore, if a wife destroys her husband's leadership, she destroys something of his manhood and thereby diminishes her own love for him. That's a powerful statement. A lot of women unknowingly are destroying the very thing and diminishing the very thing in their husband that draws them to him and causes them to love him. But a lot of women take over and criticize and tear their husbands down. And when this happens, a man gets diminished and a man is finished. Because the one thing that all men desire in human relationships more than anything else is the respect of their wife and their children. Another thing here about submission, it's not conditional. You know, a lot of women will say, well, look, if my husband does what he's supposed to do, then I'll respect him and I'll defer to him in leadership. If he measures up, then I'll submit to him. Now, it's clearly a lot easier that way, but Peter doesn't let us off the hook that easily. This was written to wives in a moment we're going to see who were primarily to wives whose husbands are unbelievers who were disobedient to the word. And it calls upon them to be submissive. So there's no contingency here in both cases with the husband and the wife, and we'll see this next week with the husbands. It's not well, if your husband does this, then you do this. Or if your wife does this, you do this. It's unilateral. You do what God has called you to do. And remember, wives, ultimately, you're doing this for God, not for your husband. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands as to the Lord. So submission is an act of worship whose primary purpose is to honor and to glorify God. Now, one final thing before we move on here, and that is, do you notice here in this passage, Peter doesn't spell out every detail of what this looks like in marriage. Not a list of actions here, you know, do these five things or these 10 things. We like it better that way, but submission's not so much a list of actions, it's an attitude. And I'm sure every wife here, and I'm sure many of the husbands as well, we're left kind of with a lot of questions. 
But Scripture just lays out the general principles and leaves the details to be worked out between the spouses in their marriage. And I pray that you'll do that together, that you'll consciously work these things out in your marriage in a way that pleases God, and that all of us will have a tender, sensitive, yielded heart to the Lord, and that we'll be willing to submit first to Him so that we can submit uh, to others. So really what I'm saying here is each wife who's here this morning, you need to go before the Lord and determine before God what this looks like in your marriage. And be yielded to God and ask Him to help you uh, to do that. So for the wife, submission is an obligation. Now, this also creates an opportunity for wives that have husbands who don't know the Lord. And that's uh, the next part here, the, the second point, the opportunity. The context here primarily in 1 Peter 3 is women who are married to husbands who are unbelievers. Notice it says, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one, that is one to Christ or saved without a word by the behavior of their wives. So this is a, addresses a specific situation. What you had in that day was a pagan couple uh, living their lives there in, in Asia Minor where Paul is, or, or Peter is writing, and all of a sudden the wife hears the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and she gets saved. But her husband doesn't get saved or become a believer. And so the question here is, what should she do with her disbelieving husband? And the answer is, try to win him to Christ. Now, I know that's where some of you uh, ladies are here this morning. I know we have several wives in our church who are in that situation. Like the lady just came up to me after the early service and told me how she appreciated this because um, her husband's uh, not a believer, doesn't come to church with her, and I, did, I didn't know that. We need to remember these dear ladies, though, and encourage them because it's a very difficult situation. We want you to know that God cares about you and we care about you. And God cares about your husband and your family. And there's the potential and the opportunity that God's given you to win that unbelieving husband to Christ, to, to have an evangelistic impact in his life. And the two keys here really to winning your husband are don't walk and don't talk, uh, to, to stay and to submit. You notice don't walk, and that it means that don't leave him just because he won't receive Christ. Stay with him and try to win him for Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 14 says this, if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, that, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Saying, look, if, if you're married to an unbeliever and they'll, they'll stay with you, then stay with them and, and live with them and try to save them. In other words, don't change your partner, but work to change your partner's heart. And I know that's not easy, and those of us with believing spouses are blessed. We need to be thankful and grateful to God for that because those with an unsaved spouse face a, a serious temptation and trial. You come to church every Sunday alone or maybe you come uh, to church just with your children and you wish that things were different. But God's word would tell you today, don't walk, 
Don't give up. Hang in there and trust in the Lord. But the second thing this passage would tell us is don't talk. Notice that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, we don't want to take this one without a word overly literal because people have to hear the gospel to get saved, right? Um, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So you can't get saved if you don't hear the gospel. Back down a little bit further in uh, chapter 3 and verse 15 of 1 Peter, it says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's within you. So people have to hear the gospel to be saved, but I think this passage presupposes that the wife has already shared the gospel with her husband because it says he's disobedient to the word. So to be disobedient to it, he has to have heard it. So I think she shared the gospel with him at least once, probably several times, and he's rejected it. So the gospel's been communicated and he's rejected it. What it's saying here is, once your husband has heard the gospel and rejected it, your most effective evangelistic tool at that point is gracious, submissive, respectful behavior and attitude towards him. In other words, it's saying, win him to Christ through the eye, not through the ear. Notice verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. One man I read this week said it like this for wives. He said, use video, not audio. And I like that. By the way, that's a good thing for us to do in our lives in a, lot of, in a lot of cases. Use video, our life, not so much audio. In other words, don't nag and keep talking to him about it and argue with him and badger him about it, but, but live it out. Manifest the gospel. Present a compelling witness for Christ in your home. Many of you uh, know the name St. Augustine, St. Augustine. Um, he wrote his book called His Confessions in A.D. 397, so a long time ago. Many of you know about Augustine. He grew up in a, a very ungodly family. His mother, Monica, though, became a believer and began to pray for him, and he was converted. And his book, Confessions, contains a moving tribute to his mother, Monica, concerning the influence she had in bringing Augustine's father, Patricius, to Christ. And here's what Augustine said. She served my father as her master. She did all she could to win him for you. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly life, she gained him for you. At the end of his life, Patricius came to Christ, and he was gained because of the wonderful witness of his wife, Monica. Look, the deep and growing beauty of a woman who trusts in the Lord has a profound impact on her husband. And that's even true if the husband's a believer. But above everything else, it's precious in the sight of God. So submission for a wife is an obligation. It's also an opportunity. But finally, it's an ornament. We see that in verses 3 through 6. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Now, isn't it amazing how up-to-date the Bible is? <laughs> It's all about ladies here, hair, jewelry, clothes. I mean, these are still the things that consume uh, many women in our culture, our media-driven culture, women's magazines, advertisements, all of these things. And when he says your adornment, he uses that word in verse 3 and verse 5. That word adorn is the word cosmos, and it means order or harmony. Cosmetics comes from this word. The opposite of that is chaos. Saying, don't let your adornment, the outward adornment, just be 
don't let it be external. Now, a lot of translations put the word in merely external. And I think that's a good addition because this is not a legalistic ban on beauty or nice clothes. It doesn't forbid these things because if it was a total ban, it would even forbid putting on dresses. And the women would have had to go around without any clothing, right? He says, not braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. So it can't be a a blanket prohibition, or he would be prohibiting women from even wearing uh, dresses, which is what they wore in that day. So this is not a total prohibition. It's about proportion. It's talking about excess and extravagance and exorbitant spending on these things and using these things to impress other people. Uh, back in that day, from what I've read, women who were wealthy would wear their hair stacked up, like they, they called it like in stories, like a building, a, a real tall beehive, I guess. But they would put in that a lot of their expensive jewelry, gold and, and, and pearls and all kinds of things. And it was kind of a show to be impressive uh, for their wealth. It was kind of an elaborate, extravagant uh, show. And what he's saying here is, the, the main point is don't major on those things. Don't overdo it. In other words, pursue the highest beauty. The greatest adornment, Peter is saying, is on the inside. The beauty of the heart is what God is focused on, not the beauty that comes from the store or from a surgeon. 1, Peter 2, 9, or 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, Paul wrote this. I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with trying to look your best as a wife. In fact, your husband will appreciate it very much. I greatly appreciate Cheryl's attention to her appearance. I appreciate it so much. And the, the, the bride in the book of Song of Solomon, when you read that, was beautifully adorned. She had on expensive sandals and shoes and gold chains and silver and perfume and on and on. And I really think that looking shabby and unkempt can also be a detriment to the gospel. I think that can be just as offensive. So, so work to look your best, but he's saying don't make that your focus and your preoccupation. Avoid an overzealous pursuit of outward beauty. Don't depend on outer things uh, to make you beautiful and attractive. They're a hollow substitute for the true beauty that's in the heart. And by the way, I think we ought to be communicating this to our daughters and our granddaughters, to to young women in the church. Character is more important than cosmetics. One man said it like this, let your bling be goodness, not just gold. But think about this, character doesn't wrinkle, right? I mean, virtue never, ever goes out of style. Proverbs 31.10 says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So put your maximum efforts more into a spiritual makeover. Notice verse 4, but, notice the contrast, not these outward things, that's not the focus, but the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious to God. Gentle here means power under control. It's not insisting on our own rights, it's not being pushy and demanding our own way. Quiet means calm and peaceful and tranquil. It's the opposite of being restless and rebellious. 
Now, these words aren't incompatible with a woman being vivacious and extroverted and humorous and enthusiastic, but, but it means not to be boisterous and badgering. It pictures someone who's controlled and calm, and he's saying this is precious in the sight of God. This is the true beauty that God desires. And then he closes out here with an illustration from the Old Testament to drive home the point. Notice verse 5, for in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their husbands. It's kind of a general reference, but then he hones in on Sarah, one specific example from the Old Testament. And he says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, the word obeyed here probably is just a synonym in this context for submit. It means to, to pay attention to, or she's to, she followed Abraham's leadership. Now, I've had women tell me before, well, you know, if I had a husband like Abraham, you know, I could have followed his leadership too. He was a godly man. Well, have you ever read the story about Abraham? <laughs> I mean, he led his family down during a famine to Egypt, and when he was down there, he lied that Sarah was his sister, and she got taken into Pharaoh's harem because he was a chicken, thought he might kill him. And then he does the same thing years later with a Philistine king named Abimelech, the very same heir. Now, that might be kind of a hard guy to respect, you know, who lies and gets you sent off into these harems. And both cases, God sent dreams to these pagan kings before they touched Sarah and told them they were dead men if they did anything. But God had to come and rescue her. So Sarah, you know, had a, a difficult time, I'm sure, sometimes respecting Abraham. But it says here she called him Lord. Now, it's lowercase Lord, but it means she held him in highest respect. Now, the Bible never suggests it was Abraham's idea to call him Lord. It was simply something voluntary she did out of respect. If any of you husbands go home and try to get your wife to call you Lord, I can tell you what the results are going to be, so uh, don't try that. But this was Sarah's idea. In other words, it was an expression of her willingness to be in subjection to him. So the whole idea here, again, of submission is voluntary. And by the way, this didn't keep Sarah from speaking her mind. If you go back and read Genesis 21, Sarah was no pushover. She was a strong-willed woman. I love Genesis 21:12. God tells Abraham, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. And that's good advice for all men, what your wife tells you to listen to her. But we know Sarah had stunning physical beauty. Uh, Pharaoh wanted her in his harem when she was 65. Now, she lived to be 127, so most people say that's probably like a woman 40 to 45 today. But Abimelech wanted her in, her, in his harem when she was 90, which would probably be like someone 55 to 60 today. So her, her beauty was stunning, but her fame in the Bible doesn't rest on her physical beauty, but the beauty of her spirit. That's what the Bible uh, focuses on. And when you respect your husband, he says, you take on the spiritual heritage of Sarah. You become daughters of Sarah. In other words, you join her modeling agency, if you will, as she models what a godly wife should be like. One person I read years ago, I can't remember who it was, but he said that one reason that, that Abraham and Sarah got along so well is that he called her princess and she called him Lord. Because the word Sarah means princess. Every time he said her name, he called her princess, and she called him Lord. You know, as you, as you look at this passage and think about husbands and wives and our marriages, the, the real key to all of this is that we have a relationship with the Lord. 
Back in verse 5, it says, these holy women, they hoped in God. And that's our ultimate hope that we have in the midst of our marriages. And look, marriage, the reason marriage is, is disappointing and can be discouraging sometimes and not be what we want it to be is because it's the union of two sinners. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we trust in him, he invades our life and gives us the ability to carry out the commands he's given us. None of this is possible without having Christ in your life. On down a few verses in 1 Peter 3, 18, it says, Christ died for sins once for all, the, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior this morning, if your hope is not in him as your Savior, as your substitute who died in your place, I want to give you the opportunity right now, wherever you sit, to open your heart and take Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to put your hope in God through his Son, uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior. I want to close with this this morning. There's a book I read a few weeks ago. I think I mentioned a couple quotes from it already. But it's a book called uh, In His Own Words. It's a book by Jerry Jenkins about Billy Graham. And uh, there's a chapter in there about their marriage and how much Billy loved Ruth and she loved him. And he said she was the greatest woman he'd ever met. In fact, the greatest Christian he'd ever met. But someone asked Ruth one time if she'd ever considered divorcing Billy. She said, never. Murder occasionally, but never divorce. I like that. But it goes on and tells this story. It says that Ruth recounted to an interviewer one time that her oldest daughter, Gigi, overheard her father tell Ruth before he left for India once in the 1950s that he wanted no more than two fireplaces in the new home that Ruth was having built for them. When he returned, he found five fireplaces in the home and got really upset and began to get angry. And his wife interrupted and said, oh, I thought you said no fewer than two fireplaces. But Ruth said that her daughter pulled her aside and said, Mom, you know Dad said no more than two. And Ruth told her, there comes a time to stop submitting and start outwitting. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that that's a good thing to do. I'm just saying this is a godly woman, and she struggled with it, right? But the story, that goes on and tells the story. It says, Ruth Graham adored her husband once when he said something about the aging man who looked back at him from the mirror every morning. She told the visitor, I love every well-earned line in that face. He's as handsome to me as the day I met him. And then this is the close of this chapter. It says, as they aged, Ruth became confined to a wheelchair or her bed. Mr. Graham said they found themselves more in love than they'd ever been. Eventually, she was in so much pain, he says, I couldn't even touch her. I would just sit by her bed, and we would look at each other, sometimes for hours. We continued our lifetime love affair with our eyes. And then it says this, in later years when Ruth died, Billy Graham was homebound with many infirmities. He was often heard to say that he loved all five of those fireplaces in the house. Look, God's not calling us to a perfect marriage. Billy Graham and Ruth Graham didn't have a perfect marriage. God's not calling you or me to have a perfect marriage or a family, but he's calling us to honor him in the unique setting of our home and the marriage that God has given to us. And for wives, your calling is to submit to and to respect your husband, to cultivate a beautiful heart. And husbands, it's going to be our turn next week, and I know you'll all be here. So listen to your wife next Sunday and be here. And uh, if your husband wakes up next Sunday morning and says his stomach's not feeling too good or kind of something like that, make sure he gets here anyway. We want to talk to husbands next time. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ who loves the church and gives us an example.
of what a godly marriage is to look like. Father, I pray if there's anyone who's never put their hope in Jesus Christ and trusted him, that they might do that this morning. Believe in him and take him to be their savior. Father, in our homes and our marriages, we're, we're, we're sinners united together to try to glorify you and honor you. And Father, I pray for every wife here today that you'd energize them by your Holy Spirit to follow what we've talked about here today and be submissive and respectful to their husbands. And Father, I pray for wives here today who are married to husbands who are unbelievers. Father, you'd give them great patience. Give them a compelling testimony before their husbands of the truth and the power of the gospel to transform lives. Father, help them to win their husband for Christ. Father, for all of us, help us to submit to you first of all, to give ourselves to you to live out what you've called. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.